like planting, it's a lot like having a child whenever you plant a church. You can do a lot of preparation and you're going to bury it and bring it into the world, but by and large, you're kind of wondering, what's this kid going to be like? You know, what's this church going to be like? What's this worship service going to be like? What's this sermon going to be like? You know, we've done our due, our due diligence, but we're not really sure um, what the outcome is going to be. And I think a lot about that when, when I think about King's Church and the journey we've been on for the last year. Um, one of my first thoughts is how in awe I am that God has brought so many amazing people along. You know, the most visible on a Sunday would be these folks up here who volunteer and tirelessly give and lead us in worship week after week after week. Um, you know, I think about Chuck and Sasha and their commitment to build a house of prayer and to walk with us in this. And, you know, I think about Gilbert and Christy who just moved here, just moved into their house yesterday down in Garrett County from Georgia. You know, we've known them less than a year, really. And all of a sudden, they sense God saying, come and join the work in Lexington. And to my astonishment, they <laughs> said, we were joining with you and what God's doing. And they sold everything and moved here and moved in. And it's, it's just, I'm amazed at that. I'm amazed at how God has brought each of you along this as well. And, um, you know, Meg and I, we've been in ministry for 20 years and served at a number of different churches. And I would have, I would have just died to have any one of you, any one of you on, our, on my team at some of the churches I've been in. Any one of you would have made a difference. Any single one of you partnering with Meg and I in the past honestly could have changed the, changed the, 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 the course and the trajectory and the culture of some of the churches that we served in. And now we're, here we are, King's Church. Uh, I mean, we're just, we have an astonishing, you know, what a roster we have. Um, and I know that God is doing that because he's, he's the, 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 the quality of the team is indicative of the fight ahead you know so I just say Lord if this is the team that you're assembling there must be some incredible things in the days to come that you have for us you know and um, so I think about that I think about what kind of church King's Church is going to become it's like a child you can do a lot of stuff to you know nurture and shape it but ultimately it's going to have a life of its own and I'm not 100% sure. If you would have told me a year ago that, that we would be in this position now, it just would have blown my mind. And if you were to tell me now what, what's ahead 12 months from now, it would blow my mind too. I don't, I don't know. And I know that, that God has told us to put, to, to sort of like help shape that. You can't do this as a, biologically. You can't shape the DNA of your children, fortunately, not yet. You know, but we can shape the DNA of our church, and God has given us that. And we've shared this threefold vision that God has given us of being a worshiping family, and that's what that's what we try to do. You know, when, when small things, you know, like when 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 Brian says, "Give somebody a high five or a hug," we want to we want to treat one another as brothers and sisters. We want to love on one another. When we have family feast Sunday. It's not just because we're too lazy to go home and cook for ourselves. It's because a little bit we are, yeah. But really, it's just because we love to be together, and this is what families do. Families eat, and we work, and we play, and we just, you know, you know snipe at one another's kids whenever they're whatever. It's like all of you, you know, you're, you're parents with me, and I'm parents with you, and we're just, this is part of what it means to, to be a family in a church, you know, so we can help shape the DNA of that even in this last year. Um, and... You know, we also talked about, about being 
um, a house of prayer. That's, another, that's the second of our threefold vision. And we're, we're, in, we're intentionally practicing things that we believe will impact us for years to come. So, you know, some of you, you know, you show up about 10 o'clock. Um, others, we, we were here at 845 praying in, in this lobby out here before we do any. I didn't even get to unload my truck today from some of the food. Meg's like, nope, we pray first. So I left the truck there and left all this food inside, and we came in. We were running late. Everybody else was already praying. But, you know, we pray together. We pray on Wednesday you know, just we get together and we have real times of prayer. We do seasons of seasons of fasting. This is our, we're in the middle of our second one um, together. We've got another prayer campaign coming up in September because we just, we want this to be part of the DNA of, of, of who we are and what God's called us to do. Um, and ultimately, what we want to be about is kingdom revival. We, we sense that's, that's part of our calling, not exclusively to bring revival to our state. That's not what we're saying. But we, we, if, if, if we can do anything, we want to see the kingdom of God coming to the families of Lexington and to the state of Kentucky, ultimately to the, to the nations, of course. But from where we are, this is why we exist. We exist for, to honor Jesus Christ the King and to expand his kingdom. And when his kingdom is expanding, that means revival, Historically, that's what that means. It means it today. I know it's an old word. You know, some of us, you know, younger generation, we don't like that old term revival, but it is. It's what we're all about. It's what God has called us to do. We believe it's the pulse of what he's doing around the world and even in our nation. He is stirring the winds of revival, and he's asking men and women, he's asking churches, will you join with me in this? Many of us have been sensing that, um, and we want to say yes to him. So, I, just, I want to tell you that at the forefront, we are a revival-driven church. We are all about the presence of Jesus. We are all about his kingdom. We are all about seeing revival sweep through our nation, even at a cost to our own lives. We want to see that. And what we're discovering, what I'm discovering, some of you already know this, but what I'm discovering is that the key to revival is prayer. It's not having a great charismatic leader and a speaker. Praise God, you don't really have one. Got me, sorry. You know, it's not having this awesome conference. It's not having the most amazing worship band, which, you know, I, I think we certainly do. The key to revival is nothing more than prayer. God's people on their face saying, Lord, come. Come in power, come in your Holy Spirit. And I know I've said those words I've been a professional minister for a long time, and I've said those words, and often I didn't really mean it. You know, I'd kind of give lip service to it. And honestly, only in the last few years am I beginning to, to discover what that means, and I'm discovering that prayer precedes revival. If I want revival, then I need to learn both to be a prayer and to lead others in doing the same thing. So we got Pentecost coming up next Sunday, so I got the three Ps. Prayer precedes Pentecost. If I want all of the glory of Pentecost, if I want you know, the, the miracles of Pentecost, if I want the, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost you know, in my own life, in my marriage, in my kids, in my, in my, in, in, in just in my business, in our schools, in your family, in this church, in this community, if I really want to see the manifest power of God, it begins with me and us being in postures of prayer, seeking after that and asking and crying out for that. So prayer precedes Pentecost. I, 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 the, the reason I say this, uh, if I look through the book of Acts, I see it, I see it as early as Acts chapter 2, of course. You know, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that they were in a prayer meeting 
Um, but it does say that they were continually meeting, to, the, the, the apostles were continually meeting together in prayer. And one of those, the implication is one of those was on the day of Pentecost. They were praying together and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And the world changed just like that. Acts 3 talks about it as well. Peter, Peter, uh, Peter and James, they were on their way to a prayer meeting in the temple. And the beggar is begging at the, side of the, you know, at the side of the temple door. And he asks for them. He asks them for money. And they don't give him money. They give him healing instead. Um, Acts 10, Peter and Cornelius, that story is all driven by a prayer meeting. They're in places of prayer when, when, when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Acts 12, Acts 12 talks about Peter being in prison. And the church... They're gathering together, interceding specifically for his release, and then miracles happen. In Acts 16, Acts 16, the Bible talks about how Paul is going to the town of Philippi, and it says that, that Lydia and others were gathered at the river for a time of prayer, and Paul meets them there at this prayer meeting, and conversion has happened. Did you know Lydia is the very first European Christian? Isn't that awesome? She was the first convert in the, in the city of Philippi, which is in modern-day Europe, and she was the first of that church that spread and took over that continent. I wish I could say it stuck, but I believe revival is going to come to Europe as well. I believe that prayerless churches are powerless churches. And I know you and I, we've been parts of prayerless churches, and I don't want to be that. I've had a powerless ministry Many years. Good, but powerless. Sincere, but powerless. Authentic, but powerless. I don't want that. I don't want that for you and I. I'm tired, you know. <laughs> I don't have another 50 years left of ministry. I want this, these next two decades or three decades or however long God gives me on this earth, I want them to be marked with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I know that if I want a powerful church, I need to be, we need to be a praying church. And I began to realize, I began to think back in my, I want to steal this here. Somebody asked me if I wanted a stool, and I said, no, I don't want a stool, and now I'm wanting one. Shows how fickle I am. I began to think back in my own life about some of the myths that I believed about prayer in church. And one of them that was the most pervasive, maybe you've believed this, but I believe this for a long time, was that prayer was convincing God to do something that needed to be done. Anybody sort of always felt that way about prayer? You know, prayer is trying to convince God to do something that you think needs to be done. You know, like, uh, God, God, you need to fix this situation, and I'm going to pray until you finally decide to do it. And there are some stories in the Gospels about this persistence you know, and the, the, the parable of the persistent widow, for example, about how she just keeps on knocking and finally the judge gives her her way. And there's a little bit of an element of truth in that, you know, that God wants us to press in. And we're actually going to read that here in a minute. But the myth, the myth took root in my own life and I began to see prayer as my work, my obligation. If I wanted things to change, I needed to pray about it until it changed. I needed to convince God to do something that I think needed to be done. And that was a heavy weight for me to carry, both personally and as a leader in the church. And I began to, you know, and just in the, even in the last 10 years or so, I began to see that that, that myth was, it was false. It wasn't true. When in reality, prayer was agreeing with God in what he was already doing and wants to do. 
And it was a big shift for me. I went from convincing God to do something that he didn't really want to do to agreeing with God, to standing in agreement with him in what he was already doing and what he himself wanted to do. And that was, that was, that was a night and day shift for me to realize, to realize this really wasn't my work to do at all. It was God's work. It was the work of Jesus. He's already interceding. You know, he's already, he's already in, 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 a, in a posture of continual prayer before the Father, and he just says, easily just agree with me. Just stand with me and what I'm, what I'm doing and what I want to do in the world. So it went from being my work to really being his work, and that was very liberating, and I think it's liberating for our church to realize that, that we, look, let's just, let's tune in to where God is, to where his spirit is, and what he's doing, and just stand in agreement with that, you know. And so much of a part of, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but so much, so much of the joy of prayer comes from learning to hear God's voice, and I never really learned to hear God's voice. Prayer was always a one-sided conversation for me. I would tell God things, you know? And how many of you sort of were taught this, this ACTS model of prayer, A-C-T-S? Anybody learn that? It was, kind of came out 10 years ago or so. We were taught that prayer is A-C-T-S, a- a- adoration. We, we tell God how much we adore him, you know, acknowledging him. We uh, pray prayers of confession. We acknowledge the things that we've done. We give God prayers of thanksgiving. Thank you for all the things in my life. And we have the S is prayers of supplication, S. These are the things that we need, God. Please provide this, this, this. And those are all, those are all so good. And that model was very helpful for me because it freed me from very much a, my prayers were only, God, I need this, help me. You know, they were just the S. <laughs> and this model really freed me up to, just to say, wow, prayers are bigger than this. There's a lot of adoration that needs to happen. There's some confession that needs to happen. My prayers can be, you know, a little bit more multidimensional than just God, help me. Give me, give me, give me. So I, you know, I, and I think this is a great foundation to build on, but even in, you know, even what I found that that was lacking was, was, was this model, you know, if, if, if we didn't do anything else is very one-sided. I'm saying all these things to God. I'm praying these prayers to God. It's very much of a one-sided conversation, you know, um, and, and some of you wives, you know what that's like. You have those one-sided conversations with your husband. Megan has a lot of those one-sided conversations with me. She's like, are you even listening to me? You know, I apologize for that right now, for those times. One-sided conversation. And I, and I begin to realize that the, the, the joy of prayer really does come from hearing God as well. Not just speaking to God, but from sensing his presence, from hearing what he thinks about things and people and situations, and, and then standing in agreement with him. And that was, that was so eye-opening for me that that was even a possibility, Nobody ever told me that you can really hear the voice of God specifically, consistently. I just assumed that that, was, that kind of idea was really just for you know, the mystics or the, the, the hyper-charismatics or you know, the ones who really were sort of on this you know, other spiritual plane that I could never attain to. No one ever told me that you know, the believer, any believer through the power of the Holy Spirit could cultivate such intimacy with God where we can hear his voice. You know, and I began to sort of test God in this and put him to the test and listen and say, God, I want to, I want to hear you. And I, there's a lot of clutter I had to get out of my mind, a lot of distractions. I had to really begin to train myself to hear. 
You know, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. You know, and I wanted to know, Jesus, I want to know what your voice sounds like in my heart. You know? And so it went from being, you know, our work to really being his work that I could stand in agreement with. And then the more I began to hear God, prayer became just a natural overflow of this relationship. And I, I want our, I want King's Church to be a, a praying church in the fullest understanding of that word, not just through this rote ritual of prayer, not this obligation of doing prayer meeting, but where prayer is the very life that we live as a people, where we can't wait to come together and pray because God speaks, God shows up, right? So um, I want to kind of throw two, two things at you from the word this morning that, 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 I, that have made an impact in my own life, that have changed how I viewed prayer. Um, and yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I, that's my challenge is that Yeah, let's let's just let's commit. Let's see what God will do in this season, in the in the days to come, as we become a praying church. So the first is going to be found in Genesis 18. If you will turn there to Genesis 18, this is a this is an incredible. This is a story, a season in the history of the world, a time that's desperately in need of revival. The first you know, 11, 12 chapters of Genesis are the story of from going from blessing to curse. Blessing means God has created the world and he's looked on it and he said it's good. And then man makes choices of rebellion and choices of sin and it only just catapults and gets worse and worse and worse. And by the time we get to, 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 to sort of the middle of Genesis, the world is in an absolute mess. God has destroyed the world by flood um, and he has started over with Noah, yet that didn't really fix the sin problem. And in Genesis 12, it tells us that he looks for a man, um, a man of righteousness that he can use to bring redemption to the world. And he finds that man, in a, in a, finds that person in a man named Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. But in Genesis 18, I guess I need to turn there too before I talk too much about it. We've got Bibles up here, by the way, as Meg mentioned. And there's, there's so much to, to his story. Um, and... and, and Maybe in the next year, we're going to spend some time walking through the book of Genesis and looking at this in greater detail. Um, but essentially, God has made a lot of promises to Abraham. Most essentially is, through, the, through you, I'm going to bless the world. You're old, you have no children, but through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And he's looking to see, can I find in Abraham a man that I can use to do this? And Abraham has his own failures. He has his own ups and downs. He makes plenty of mistakes, you know, as you read through his story. So in, in, in 18, the Bible talks about Abraham being sort of in his tent, and three men show up. We know by reading this, and we know sort of, you know, through later on, that these are not just ordinary men. These are indeed um, spiritual beings. These are angels. These are messengers from the Lord who come um, to, to minister, and they're the ones who come and give Sarah the promise of a son, and she laughs, and, you know, and, and um, here in 18, um, they show up, and he gives them sort of the traditional Middle Eastern show of hospitality. He runs, and they prepare the great feast, and they mix up the bread, and they, you know, find the, the, the calf, and they prepare it to eat, and this is where she laughs whenever they tell her these things. 
Um, but let me, let me read a little bit here, beginning in verse 16. Sodom and Gomorrah, you've heard those terms. Those are cities um, in the ancient world. Right now, they are, they're more synonyms for wickedness. You know, we've got terms like sodomite and sodomy and, and those kind of things. All of that comes from these ancient cities of, in, the, in the plains of Jericho, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and they are, according to the text, rampant in wickedness. They are profoundly wicked. And it seems to me that the Lord is going to bring judgment upon these two cities in the near future. And in, eight, in, in Genesis 18, 16, it says this, when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, sort of talking to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about the, for Abraham what he has promised him. So he's saying, look, if I, can, I really can't hide from Abraham my plan because you know, I'm banking that Abraham is going to be the one that I can trust. So I really should, should tell him what I'm about to do. The Lord said in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I want to stop right there for a minute. And he goes on to say this. He goes on to, um, to talk, you know, to have this conversation, but I, I want you just to... Um, to really imagine what's happening here. And there's some, there's some unique way that the writer writes this. You know, God is having this conversation with himself and I don't fully understand how all that works. All we know is that God has an intention to do something and he takes it upon himself to communicate this somehow to Abraham. And Abraham and these, they're, they're walking along and the Bible says this, um, the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So I'm not sure what that means. Maybe two of the three were angels and one was the physical representation of the Lord. Maybe two of them went away and one was standing there. I don't know exactly what to make of all of this. All we know is that as these two go, these two individuals are standing here. Abraham is standing next to his creator. The Lord and Abraham are standing, and their eyes are going this way towards the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to read this one more time because there's a shift that I want to tell you about. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham, say Abraham, Abraham. remained standing before the Lord. So this is the NIV, and I'm not sure what translation you have, but there is one translation that, that, I re, that I've read, the NLT, the New Living Translation. Does anybody have that this morning? The NLT, New Living Translation. came out maybe 15 years ago. One of my Old Testament professors was the Old Testament editor for this. Heather has it there. Remember John Oswald? He's the Old Testament editor for the New Living Translation. And I had him for a class one time, and he began to tell me about this particular thing. And, he's, and he's, 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 he's referring to their translation of this passage. He said, we know, we know that every translation up to our point renders that exactly as I just read it. Abraham remained standing before the Lord. He said, but when we met together as a committee 
and we really looked at the original Hebrew and we discussed this, we realized that we had an obligation to translate it a little bit differently. And if you look at the NLT, you're going to realize it is a different way of saying it. And it says this, same verse in the NLT, throw it up there if you can see it. The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. And he said, that's a significant distinction. That's a significant nuance, he said. Because what it means is it puts the impetus for remaining not on Abraham, but on the Lord. As if the Lord was sticking around just a few more minutes the Lord remained with Abraham. And over the years, I began to think through the implications of that. And I began to see that that really, that was a small shift that represented something huge in my own understanding. Because it reminded me what I told you at the beginning, that the motivation for prayer doesn't begin with me. It begins with him. And the two are walking along, and God is like, you know, the Lord is like stalling. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had those kind of things? You know, whenever you're in high school, guys, whenever you're in high school and there's like the pretty girl that's kind of, you know, you're walking with her on the way to class and, you know, you're like, you're dragging, you're finding every excuse in the world you can just to kind of like delay a little bit, you know? Oh, I've got to tie my shoe and, you know, and just ask questions, you know? It's like God is, God is, God is finding every possible reason to just stick around a little bit longer. Why is he doing that? Because he wants to see what Abraham will say, what Abraham is going to do. And Abraham, to his credit, takes the bait. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, Lord, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do what is right? So these two have gone on. Abraham is here. God is here. God is like not taking any more steps. The Lord is not taking any more steps. And Abraham finally says, God, by the way, I know what you're about to do. Are you sure this is a good idea? I know it's full of wickedness, but if there are 50 righteous out there, would you not spare your coming wrath? It doesn't make sense, Lord, for you to destroy 50 righteous people. And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. That's what he says. God says, all right, Abraham, you're making a deal with me. If you can find 50, I'll spare the entire city. Abraham spoke up again, listen to this. He said, now that I've been so bold as to speak uh, to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is is five less? God, what if I can only find 45? Are you going to destroy it just because of five unrighteous people? And God says, if I find 45 there, I'll not destroy it. It It's like like going going to Vegas, you know? All right, two for two, come on. Once again, Abraham spoke and said, Lord, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I won't do it. If you can find 40 righteous in that city, Abraham, I will hold back from what I'm about to do. 
Verse 30, he keeps on going. I love him. May the Lord not be angry. He's like, God, listen, don't be mad. Hold up, don't be mad. Listen. But let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there, Lord? What is God? God says, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold, what if only 20 can be found? He's just pressing in. He's just asking for more and more. God says, for the sake of 20, I won't do it. Verse 32, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak one more time. God, what if only 10? Listen, there, there may not be 50. God, what if I can only find 10? God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. I wonder this. I wonder if Abraham could have pressed in even more. 50, okay, God. 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. How many of you think, how many of you think, God, that he, that he could have said, God, what if I can only find one righteous man in that town? Will you not destroy it? What would God have said? He would have said, I'll hold back if you can find one righteous person in that town. Doesn't say that. It's okay. I don't know if I would have. I probably wouldn't have pressed in for 10. I would have probably stopped at 45. Like, Ooh, okay. But what does that tell you about the heart of God? He's waiting and he's willing to have his mind changed by someone as insignificant as you and I. Waiting around. I want you to notice a couple things that matter in this. One is Abraham's nearness to God. I think that matters for us. But Abraham remains standing before the Lord. That's a big verse. We can't be intercessors if we are not remaining before the Lord because I promise you the Lord is waiting for us. The Lord is standing there waiting on us. Nearness to God matters. Thought I would have got an amen for that one. Nobody, come on. That's the best one. That's everything. Look at this also. Conviction of God's righteousness and mercy. The more near we are to God, the more we understand his character, the more that we can know this is something that God wants to do, this is something that God does not want to do. How does Abraham know this? Because he's been near to the presence of God. The more near we are, we, can, we, can, we understand God's mercy, we understand his, his righteousness, and we can say, God, this is not in keeping with your character. This is not in keeping with your will, Lord. Look at his boldness then. And asked the boldness in requesting, 45 down to 5. Look at the persistence in asking again and again and again. And breakthrough comes when we stand in agreement with what God wants to do. Guys, that's a, that's, 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 that's a big deal for me. I don't know. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe I'm just so obtuse that I... 
I'm sort of relearning some of these things. But to realize that prayer begins with him, prayer begins with his heart, intercession begins with his heart, that God is waiting for me to change, to bring heaven down to earth. God is waiting on me to see and to ask and to be bold and persistent. God wants to do it. I'm not twisting his arm. It's his heart. God says, look, I'll go from 50 down to one. I just need somebody to do it. I just need somebody to intercede on their behalf. In Ezekiel 22, I love this verse too. Ezekiel 22, God talks about the coming judgment, the judgment that's coming upon God's people, and he outlines this in great detail, all the terrible things that are going to happen, that God's going to do, you know? God is a righteous judge, you guys. He is a consuming fire. He will judge the earth. He will judge the church. He will judge you and I for the things that we've done. And he goes on to say all these things. And at the very end of this, in Ezekiel 22, it says this. Uh, let me just read a little bit of this. It talks about the, 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 the leaders of Israel. He says, the, the, the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. On and on and on. He talks about all this. The princes are corrupt. The priests are corrupt. Everybody is corrupt. This whole land is full of wickedness, and my judgment is about to come. But look at what he says in verse 30. He says, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall. Look at this wall language. It's like, it's like there's this wall of God's protection surrounding them. And because of their own sin, the wall has collapsed down. And he says, I looked for a man who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. God is saying, I would love, I'm looking for someone, I'm looking for a man, for a woman, for somebody who will just stand in the gap and say, God, no, not yet withhold your, just, your justice, withhold your wrath. Give us a few more minutes, give us a little bit more time to repent and come to you. God says, I'm looking for somebody who's going to stand in the gap and do this. And wouldn't it be great if God said, and I found 50? That would have been awesome if he said, I looked and I found 50 men who are willing to do this. It'd be great if he said, I found 45 or 40 or 10. Heck, it'd even be a win if you found one. He says, but I found no one. I found no one, so I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their heads all they have done. Wow. That didn't make for a good Instagram post, does it? So my challenge is this, y'all, we can't, we're not going to wait for others. We're not going to stand back and say, look, some other church can do this. Some other people can do this. We're going to be a people that intercede. We're going to be a people that stand in the gap. I want to be the kind of person that stands in the gap that says, God, you can count on me. If no one else does, I want to. I want to intercede. I want to bring breakthrough in my community. Real quick. I know our time is up. Four things real quick, and they have to do with, with, with parts of the body that we, can, that we can engage for this. How do we stand in the gap? First of all, eyes. We use our eyes. What, is God, what does God see? That song that we sang a few minutes ago, one of the lines was, give me vision to see things like you do. It begins with eyes. What does God want us to see in the, in, in the community around us, in one another? What does God want us to see? What does, he, what does he want us to pay attention to? Where is he? What's he doing? Second thing is heart. What does God want to change about that? What is his heart? 
If we can see it and we can really get a sense of what God's heart is, whether it's to heal someone, whether it's to encourage someone, whether it's to do anything else, what is his heart? Hands is another one. Rebuild the wall. We work and we pray. We don't just sort of stay on the sidelines and pray. We, all, we pray, but we also say, God, how can we serve practically? What can I do? How can I, how can I help you? What practical things can I do to, for intercession? Prayer is partnered with the work of the kingdom. They're meant to go together. We're not going to be a church that just stays in our you know, monastery and prays. We're going to pray in the secret place. We're also going to be in the streets doing the things that God's called us to do. And finally, this is mouth with our boldness. We pray boldly. We pray specifically. We pray expecting. We pray continually. We pray relationally with one another. We pray creatively. And I can talk more about those, but my time is up a little bit. Stand up with me if you would on this. Brian, come on up. Prayerless churches are powerless churches. But the opposite is true too. If we, King's Church, if this is part of our DNA and it begins to manifest itself, we're going to see power breakthroughs at every turn. We're going to see revival coming in us and through us. Hear me on this. Y'all are a little quiet. I want you to hear me on this. Prayer is agreeing with God in what he is already doing and wants to do. Anybody want to agree with God in what he's doing? We're going to stand in agreement with what the kingdom is about. That means first we have to understand what the kingdom is about. We have to see what God is doing. We have to be near to him and listen to him and see where his spirit is moving. And ask him, God, what do you want to do? He's going to tell us, I want to heal that person. I want to free this person. I want to encourage this person. I want to save that person right there. And then by standing in agreement, say, okay, God, we're in agreement with you. This is what we want to change. Now, how can we be used for this? Do I lay hands? Do I encourage? Do I share the gospel with this individual? Do I serve the poor in this area? We hear and we stand in agreement with it and we act. We step out and we do it. So we practice this. We do this as a church. It's who we are. Amen? All right.